Hi, everybody. It is good. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 15. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 15. Uh, last week, last week I explained that during our chapel time, we were going to look specifically at the person of Jesus. That each week we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus? And last week we looked at this story in the Bible about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And we spent some time looking at the truth that Jesus is not our accuser, but that Jesus is our friend. And so today, I just want to jump right into it and say that not only is Jesus our friend, but Jesus is also grace. Jesus is grace. Now, grace, grace is one of those words, one of those church words that perhaps we've heard it before, perhaps you've even said it. We talk about amazing grace or like before a meal, we'll sit down and sometimes we'll say grace. But the truth is, is that grace, man, guys, if, if we really grasped, if we really understood what grace is or, or who grace is, it would, it would change Every, it would change your whole life. Now, for our time today, I would suggest that a good definition of grace is unmerited favor, meaning that you didn't earn it, you can't work for it, that grace, grace is a gift. All of this, every single day is a gift. It's all grace. Now, what can sometimes happen is that we get grace confused with mercy. And so I also want to take a moment. I want to give you a very simple difference, and maybe this will help. Because grace and mercy are different. And so I would say it this way. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. While mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve, like in a negative way. Grace, grace is getting an A in a class where you didn't do any of the work. Mercy is not getting an F in a class where you didn't do any of the work. Grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Are you with me? One of the first Jesus followers, a guy named John, he talks about Jesus being grace. And he says it this way. He says, the word Jesus became flesh. By the way, anytime, anytime, especially in the New Testament, like the second half of the Bible, when they talk about the word of God, they're talking about Jesus every time. They're not they're talking about a book. They're talking about a person. It says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what this dude John is saying is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. This means that grace and truth, like they're not enemies. They're, they're on the same side. We, we don't have to balance grace with truth or truth with grace, because both grace and truth are both personified in the person of Jesus. What John is saying 
is that Jesus embodied grace. Jesus oozed grace. Jesus was grace. After people met Jesus, they probably said things like, this man is different. This, this guy has like, he has like grace all over him. Jesus, Jesus gave people a picture of grace. They watched him and they listened to him. And for the rest of their lives, they didn't have to wonder what grace looked like. They knew because Jesus is grace. And for Jesus, for Jesus, a lot of times when he wanted to explain something, especially something complex, he would use a parable to do it. Now, a parable is a, like a story that has like a deeper meaning to it. It's a story that has a lesson. And Jesus, over and over again, would teach people. He would explain things to people using stories. Because as human beings, we are wired for stories. We love stories. It's why we can binge watch. We love, it's, it's why Stranger Things season four, I mean, come on. Like there, there's a reason, like we are wired for that. We are wired for a story. This past weekend, this past weekend, I was super late to the party. And I watched the movie Get Out for the first time. Has anybody seen this? Okay, it was like 2017. So if you haven't seen it, you should join the party that I'm now super late to. Absolutely brilliant and terrifying movie from Jordan Peele. As human beings, we are, we are wired for story. And the God who did the wiring knows this. And so oftentimes, Jesus would teach using a story. And when Jesus wanted to really explain what God was like, when he wanted to help people understand grace, he told a story about a lost son. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay, so we're going to stop there. We have this father. He has two sons. And the younger son comes to his father and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, when this is being written in a village society, in this context, in first century, if a son were to come to his father and say this, what he's really saying is, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. So I want my chunk of the estate now. In other words, this, this kid is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now give me what's going to be mine when you do die. Now, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but when I was younger, like my younger brother and I, we thought like, we thought our dad like had the coolest stuff. Did anybody else think their dad had like cool stuff? My son thinks that and he takes it from me. But when I remember like my dad like had like, this is like the 80s, but he had like a big stereo. He had like cool toys. And sometimes my brother and I would say this to my dad in real life. We would say, hey, dad, when you die, can I have that? We're like 10, 11 years old. And we would even like play this game where like my dad, we didn't even ask my dad. My brother and I would have conversations and we'd say, I call that. 
When dad kicks the bucket, I call it, that's mine. I call it, that's insane. Now, looking back on it, like it was kind of mean, especially now as a dad, like I, I get how that probably feels. But imagine, imagine if we had said what this younger brother says. Hey, dad, I, w- I wish you're dead now, but since you're not, just give me what's mine. And, and like, just give me what you would give me later on. And then I'm out of here. And he leaves. Now, I want you to notice something about this father in this story. The father does it. He doesn't say, no, get out of here. He grants him freedom, even the freedom to turn away from him. Now, the the story, this parable, that Jesus is telling this parable, and in the parable that's supposed to teach us something, the father is supposed to show us what God is like. The father character in the story is God. Recently, I was having coffee with a student, and they were really, really frustrated, and they want to know why we sin. Why do we mess up? Why do we do stuff that we know we're not supposed to do it, but we do it anyway? We, we do stuff, and we know when we're doing it is wrong, but we can't stop ourselves. We know that God commands us not to, but we still do it. And they're like, Pastor Zach, why doesn't God just make it so we don't mess up? Like, why doesn't God just make it so we don't sin? And why didn't God create us, create us so that we all automatically believed in him? Like, what, why, why you just, this would be a lot easier if God just made us all believe in him. Why did God make it so there was, why didn't he make it so there was no other choice? And so the student and I talked about love. And we talked about how love that's forced, love that's required, isn't really true love. If I force my wife to love me, if I say, you will love me in my glory, first of all, that's super creepy, right? But second, my wife's not really gonna be into that. Like she's not gonna really love me. Same is true with God. God God doesn't want us to be robots. Because when love is chosen, when we choose to love God, well, that's true love. That's, that's true worship. Are you with me? And that's what you see in this parable, in this story, this father that out of love for his son gives him freedom. Even the freedom to turn away and say, I want nothing to do with you. So the son chooses and he chooses to leave. But the father continues to love his son. He doesn't give up. He doesn't say, well, best of luck, kid, you're screwed. He continues to love him. You see, Jesus in this parable, in this story, he's reminding us that God will always love us. He'll give you freedom to choose him or not. And there are consequences to choosing him or not. But regardless, he's always going to love you. He will never quit loving you. He will never quit wanting to take you back. His arms will always be open. It's like Paul says in his letter in Romans, he says, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not life, not death. Figure that out. I mean, how crazy is that? How crazy is God's love for us? Nothing is ever going to separate us from that love. So the son gets his inheritance. He gets, he gets stuff, and then he splits. Now, 
when this happens, when the sun leaves, again, there's, this, is, oh, this parable is crazy. There's some deeper stuff going on that we wouldn't get. But for the people listening to this story, they would have been like, oh, man. When Jesus was telling this story, if that sort of thing happened, if someone demanded their inheritance and then split, there was a very specific thing that would happen. If someone chose to do what this brother, this younger brother has done, the community, the whole community, the whole village would come together and they would take a large ceramic pot and they would stand in front of the remaining family and they would slam the pot on the ground and they would break it and they would cry out, Kazaza. Let me hear you say Kazaza. Now, this ceremony, the Kazaza, essentially what that meant was that this person was cut off from the community forever. Essentially, he was dead to them forever. He was cut off. That's what's happened. Let's pick it up. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered all his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So this younger son leaves, he lives it up. He's on the cover of Forbes magazine, smiling next to open. He's doing the whole thing. He goes from having it all to losing it all. And then he ends up hiring himself out to a member of this other community. Now, this younger son, he would have been known in this new community. He arrived with wealth. He's been spending it everywhere. He, he, they know that he's from like an upper middle class family. They would have known from the way he dressed and the way he talked that he was a Jew. And so what job would a Jewish person absolutely detest? Pigs. If this young man has any honor left, he would refuse to feed them because he's a good Jew and pork pigs that's a big no-no that was considered unkosher unclean and what happens verse 16 he sent to the fields to feed the pigs he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything he knows he can't go home he's been cut off he's starving he has no money and so he sacrifices what little dignity he has left and he feeds these dirty, unclean, unkosher animals. Again, this is a huge no-no. Keep going, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. Again, we know. We know that he realizes that he could be fed and, and he could like not be starving if he were to work for his father. And so what's he do? He heads for home. All the while, all the while he's coming up with like this, like this killer speech that he's going to give when he sees his dad. Notice something. He doesn't come home because he's sorry. 
He doesn't come home because he's repented. He doesn't come home because he's not sorry. He's hungry. And so he has a plan. It's like, oh, I'll just, I'll make like a killer speech. And I don't know about you, but my brother and I, my brother and I totally did this sort of thing growing up. I don't know if you can realize, like we knew we were in trouble. We knew mom said, don't play ball in the house. We broke the vase, right? And we knew there's probably going to be some sort of severe punishment happening whenever this thing came to light. And so my brother and I would come up with like these killer speeches. And we would rehearse them in our room. And we'd get our story straight. We'd be like, look at me, eyes, eyes. We are unified. We get this, look, it was an accident. It just fell out. The ball was not, are, are we clear? All right, story straight. We're not going to throw each other under the bus. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Yeah, like we did this so that when we had that dreaded talk with our parents, maybe they'd be so impressed with our apology that, that somehow there'd be no punishment. Yeah, I have a feeling that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've tried it. And this is what the younger brother does. He comes up with this speech. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as he walks along the road to head towards his house, he's rehearsing it. Father, I have sinned. No, that doesn't sound right. Father, I have sinned. Oh, yeah, sin. I've, I just got to acknowledge a sin. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. Like he rehearses the speech. And so finally, he's rehearsing this speech and he gets to the path that leads to his house. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. In this story, Jesus says, while he was still a long way off. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to him. Now, this is huge. I want to show you why this is huge. When the story tells us that the father ran to him, the word used for ran in this passage is the word dramon. Let me hear you say dramon. That was weak. So let me hear you say dramon. Now, the word dramon, is, it's a technical term. This is used for like foot races in a stadium. A better word would have been that the father raced. His father raced. This isn't a slow shuffle. It's not a fast walk. He races. Now, in the Middle East, a man like this father, a man of his position, would always walk. A man of this position would always walk in a slow, dignified fashion. It's safe to assume that this father hasn't run anywhere for any purpose for like 40 years. No villager over 25 would ever run. 
but the father races down this road. Now to do this, to do this, he must take the front edge of his robe in his hands in order to run. And when he does this, he would reveal his legs in what for this culture was considered one of the most humiliating postures. You see, all of this, all of this is so shameful for the father. The community loiter in the streets, they would have seen this. They would have followed the father amazed that this father is shaming himself in this way. You see, the father knows. He knows what the son is going to face in the village. He knows about the kazaza. He knows that the kid has been cut off. And so what he does, this father takes all of the shame, all of the humiliation that his son would face, and he puts it all on himself. All of it. All of it is grace getting what you don't deserve. What Jesus is trying to explain in this story, this parable, that we miss it. So often when we in 2022 read it, we miss it. Is what we get is this parable, this story of a father who shows us what God is like. A father who leaves the comfort and security of his home and humiliates himself before the village all for his child. Again, the character of the Father shows us what God is really like. A Father who takes all of our pain and humiliation, everything that the Son deserves, and He takes it on Himself because He loves Him. That's what God's like. God who loves us so much that He takes our pain and our sin and all the times when we mess up and all the times when we're going to mess up, and He pays the punishment on a cross for all those things, the father takes the pain and this humiliation of the son on himself. Jesus takes our pain and our sin on himself. Are you with me? Last week, I told you a bit about my family. But what I didn't tell you that I've mentioned a couple times this morning is that I have a younger brother. My brother, um, his name is Adam. And uh, I am two years older than he is. Um, that makes me the oldest. Um, how many of you in here, you have brothers and sisters, and you are the oldest? My people, yes. Let's be honest, it's the oldest that rules the world. Like, that's how it works. Um, how many of you are the middle child? I can't see your hands. You don't matter anyway. Um, and <laughs> uh, just giving you some things to work out in therapy. It's fun. Um, how many of you are the youngest, the baby, the one that gets away with everything? Yeah, yeah. I have, so I have one younger brother who I absolutely tortured growing up. In fact, I tortured him so much that there were stories that my family kept from me because they knew if I knew them, I'd make fun of him. Like literally last year, we were sitting around as a family and I'm like, wait, what happened? It turns out that like, it turns out that like when he was in high school, one night he was doing homework and he had a mechanical pencil and his ear itched. And so he itched the ear with the pencil and got the eraser lodged in his ear and had to go to the ER to get the pencil eraser removed. And I just found out about this last year and they didn't tell me because they were like, "You would have, yeah, I would have made fun of him. What kind of idiot gets an eraser? So how do you even do that? How far in there? Anyway, I tortured him growing up. But when we, when we went away to college, we sort of went opposite directions. We grew up, again, in the hub of America, Mattoon, Illinois. You should check it out. 
And when we went to college, I went west to Kansas, which is always fun to explain to people. You ever have that, why Kansas? You may ever, why Kansas? And you're like, I don't know, bro. I don't don't know. Um, But I went west to Kansas, and my brother went east to Maine. And, And so that happened, and I eventually graduated from Central, and I stayed in Kansas because McPherson sucks you in like a black hole from which you'll never escape. Um... And my brother, my brother, after after he had been out in Maine for like six years, he called my parents. He said, okay, this is the year, guys. This May, I'm graduating. And so my parents were so excited, and they booked a flight out to Maine. My aunt went out there. They watched their youngest, the baby, the one they loved the best, graduate from college. And so they get there, they get to Maine, and they see, like, they see where my brother had had an apartment, and so they visit my brother's apartment, and they see that, like, my brother has, like, like, just been, like, barely scraping by for the last few years. Like, essentially, essentially, he's, like, feeding pigs. Like, he doesn't really have a lot of money, but it doesn't matter because they're so proud of him. They're so proud of all he's accomplished. He's stuck in there. He did it. He's graduating from college. The night before night before graduation, my brother and my parents are sitting in this hotel room, and my brother slowly gets up, and he goes across the room, and he shuts off the TV. He turns around to face my parents, and, and with tears streaming down his face, he explains to my parents, who have just flown across the country to see him graduate, he explains to them that he's not actually graduating. They squandered the time. He doesn't have enough credits, actually, that he had dropped out a semester ago, and he hasn't been enrolled for, like, a semester. And he just breaks down. And, like, tears, sobs. He says that he's so sorry. He looks at my parents, and he says, I'm so sorry for being such a disappointment. I'm sorry for failing. My brother, at this point, is a mess. He's like standing in the corner of this hotel room, like not even looking at my parents, just like sobbing. My dad gets up, walks over to my brother, puts his arm around him in this very cool, patient voice. Says, Adam, it's okay. You're gonna get through this. We're gonna get through this. And Adam, Adam, there is nothing you could ever do that would make us love you less. You're not a failure. We love you. We're always going to love you. There's some stuff we got to figure out here. But there's nothing you could ever do that's going to make us love you less. And the next day, the next day my parents took my brother shopping just like they would have if he had actually been graduating. And they bought him a new suit. They stocked his fridge and pantry full of food, and they reminded him that it's going to be okay, that this wasn't the end of his story, that there was forgiveness, there was grace. You see, for my brother, he felt shame and humiliation and failure, and my dad, my dad stepped into that moment. And he reminded my brother that your identity is not that of a failure, that you are my son, and that I will always love you.
just like the story of the prodigal son, my brother got a robe wrapped around him that looked like a suit, and he got his fridge and pantry full filled with the equivalent of a fattened calf. Why? Because there's nothing he could ever do that would make them love him less. Because God is about reminding us that we are loved, that we will always be loved, that no matter what we've done, he is waiting to welcome us with open arms. In fact, he moved before we do. He's waiting to welcome with open arms. That Jesus, Jesus has already paid the price for everything we've ever done, everything we ever will do wrong. And maybe for you, you need to hear what my brother needed to hear. That you need to hear that there's nothing you could ever do that's going to make God love you less. That God looks at you and says, I love you. The problem, the problem is the same problem my brother had. It's the problem for the lost son. The problem is that we don't believe God. We don't believe that his love could really be that amazing. Like I said, if we really understood God's grace, it would change everything. And so instead we think we're not worth it. Or God couldn't possibly love us that much. Or God's grace can't be that amazing. Not with everything I've done. The Father can't possibly be that good. So maybe today you need to hear that it's true. There's a God who loves you that much. That there's this big, deep, wide, crazy love. This relentless love that God has for you. There's nothing you can ever that would make God stop loving you. By the way, my brother, as soon as that thing in May happened, I called him and I said, hey, why don't you come live with us? Why don't you get your feet back on the ground? I know you don't want to move home with mom and dad, but we have a finished, furnished basement. Why don't you come live with us? Um, Kansas is, is great. It's just like May. It looks the same. Um, my brother across the country and he came and lived with us. And while he was in McPherson, I said, hey, you know, Central has this online program. You should check that out. My brother, just a few years ago, I have some pictures, um, graduated with honors. And there was this moment. By the way, and, and he, he ended up meeting his wife. And they just welcomed the birth of their second child. So they get to be Uncle Zach to these two little kids, Oliver and Micah. Maybe, maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus is grace. Maybe you need to be reminded that the Father loves you, that he is running second and close your eyes. And I want you to picture that. Like, can you see that? Can you see God running toward you? Taking all of your pain, all of your sin,
So God, we pray this morning that you would remind us that all of this, all of it is grace. It's all grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. It's a gift. All of this is grace. I pray that you would remind us of your love for us, that you are a God that runs towards us. Remind us that Jesus receive these words as ascending as we leave god loves you god loves you more than you could ever imagine he loves you with a love that has no beginning and no end it's a love that you don't have to earn and it's a love that you can't lose whether you feel like a success or a failure he loves you whether you feel alone or surrounded by people he loves you whether you feel righteous or guilty he loves you he loves you enough to send his son to live for you to die for you and to be raised for you even right now jesus is before the father speaking words of love on your behalf and he will return again to renew the whole world and you because he loves you and central, this is the most true thing about you. Before anything else can be said about you, this must be said. God loves you, and that will never change. So don't forget it. Grace and peace be with you.